episode is this? 19? 19. Whoa, guys, we've made it. Welcome to Haunt and Cold, everybody. I realized we never introduced ourselves until, like, 10 minutes in. And we don't really even introduce ourselves. We just say, oh, yeah, hi. (laughs) Oh, yeah, well, that's Katie. Yeah, I'm Katie. Uh, This is April. Over there. Yeah, that's that's me. (laughs) Well, you... Oh, yuck. Oh, you just saw a bunch of ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) That was graphic. Oh, my gosh. So the people listening, we just saw some really graphic roadkill of a large animal. Oh. That's my phone. (laughs) Um, I haven't figured out how to put a song as my ringtone yet. No? You have to download an app. GarageBand? No. Well, I guess you have an iPhone. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't know how to do it. I, I also haven't tried very hard, but. So, since the last episode, you know how I got unlimited data? Yeah. Well, now I need to get a new phone. Why? I dropped my phone the other day and looked at that big crack, and there was, like, lines across my screen. And oh, I was noticing that it, like, glitches. Look, yeah. Yeah. Well, you can still get a new phone, and your data plan will be the same. Well, I was thinking about <laughs> switching to a new carrier. We have T-Mobile. Who do you have? Uh, Xfinity. That's expensive. Is it? It sounds like it. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm now... You should probably look at the road. Don't look at me when you're okay. driving. <laughs> I, <laughs> I am now currently going to be paying $45 a month for unlimited data. Yikes. And my phone's paid off. So is that bad? That's probably... Uh, I don't... I don't... I don't know. How much is your regular service, though? Uh... So it's 45 just for your... Like, you to have your phone and have all your unlimited stuff. That's like my bill. It's 45 dollars? Mm-hmm. That's good. Okay. Well, I need a new phone, though, so... Should I go in and just tell them? That? <laughs> you will have to buy a new phone, though. Well, I don't know, like... Because I was... My, okay, my game plan was to go into, like, a different carrier and be like, I'm going to switch to you guys. That's why you should give me a free phone. <laughs> that is not how that works. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That's what I was hoping for, so. They, they sometimes do, like, I think T-Mobile has, like, new customer deals. Yeah. But I don't think it's, like, a free phone. It's, like, oh. I mean, I'm sure there might be, depending on what you get, but... Katie, stay in the lights. I'm sorry. You know, I feel like I'm, like, really low. Like, I'm not... I can't see over okay, your Okay, well, change your, change your seat. Okay. <laughs> How far have we gone and you feel like you can't see? <laughs> Since we've been driving, however, 10 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, this is episode 19. This said it's only been recording for two minutes. Oh, so for two minutes. It felt like a long time. That felt like a really long time. <laughs> Yeah. Our concept of time is pretty skewed. Hey, do you remember me telling you a long time ago, I texted you and I said, hey, remind me next time we record about telling you my most embarrassing, my new most embarrassing moment. Didn't you say it? Did or I, did you tell me? Did I tell you what it I was? I don't know. Do you remember the story? Tell the people. Because I was thinking about it last night and I'm like, I don't think I ever We did talk about it because I told you my most embarrassing story and we kind of went back and forth on, yeah, that is pretty embarrassing. So yeah, you go and then I'll share the... Okay. And then we'll try to remember if we actually talked about this or not. Uh, (laughs) Probably have. 
Okay. I don't know. If you remember this story, then we for sure have talked about it because I have not shared it to anybody else. So, <laughs> one night I was door dashing and I was really hungry. So, do you remember the story? I don't think and so. And I got myself some food. I can't remember if it was like McDonald's or Wendy's or what it was. But I ate like half my sandwich and I threw it back into the bag because I was delivering something. And when I went to go deliver the item, I you know I dropped off the person's order and it came back to my car. And I realized after I drove away that I dropped off my bag of happy food as well. Also, <laughs> also. <laughs> so whoever got that order got like whatever they ordered plus like some random happy in meal. <laughs> Did you get a bad review? No, I never heard anything, but I was just like, that is so embarrassing. Like, they're probably upset, <laughs> I think, or disgusted, I don't know. I feel like they probably assumed if they got their entire order that that wasn't part of their thing, so they probably just laughed it off. I, I sure hope so, So I'm like, <laughs> oh, that is funny. It was really embarrassing, though. Katie, stay in the lines! I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm now like hyper aware because we're recording and I'm like, it's not funny. Our lives are at stake. So every time a car passes, you like panic and go out of the lines. Get practice. Just hold your ground. Hold your ground. Listen, they're going so fast. But they have their own I'm going 75 miles per hour. They're going 75 miles per hour. So if you think about it, we're going 140 miles per hour at each other. <laughs> no? Isn't that what crime scene investigators do? They're like, this is how hard it's smashed. It's still 75 miles per hour. But if you're coming at each other, it adds. No, it's just the same. It's this plus that. Oh, it's not though. Didn't you take physics? No. I mean, yes, but I failed. Oh. So, yeah. If you want, you could set the... Here. It's set that okay. so you can focus on one thing at a time. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's over. Okay. Anyway. Do you want to hear my story? Yeah. Wait. First. Oh. So this is a two-parter on my end. Yeah, because we're driving really far east, just like we did in episode one. So, um, I told April to have two stories prepared, and then when we get to my location, we got two parts. Yeah. So, April is going to tell one story, and then we'll stop, and she'll tell her other story, and, but you guys will get a regular episode. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Also... We haven't talked about what's happened in our lives. No? <laughs> what? I don't know. What's happened? <laughs> Nothing. Oh, yeah. It's like, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. Oh. How are you? Am I good? I'm good. Okay. Well, then let's move let's on. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, anyway. It's a big one. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Um, I got a lot of my information from charlieproject.org, findagrave.com, the archives of Salt Lake Tribune, Doe Network, the Morbid Library, 
and Wikipedia. Nice. Okay, Good let's sources. start. On the afternoon of July 4th, July 4th, 1975, Nancy Baird was working her shift at FINA gas station on 1378 North Highway 89 in Salt Lake City. A patrol officer saw her at 5.15 a.m. Nope, p.m. <laughs> Highway 89. Where is that? I think that's, like, Davis County. Oh. Um, we said Salt Lake. Well, I lied. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Alright. Highway 89. Uh, Highway 89, wherever that is in Utah. Got it. Okay. A patrol officer saw her at 5.15pm, but 15 minutes later, her manager arrived to take over the shift, and Nancy was nowhere to be found. Uh, Nancy was born January 14th, 1952 in Provo, Utah. She graduated high school in 1969 and became a young mom about two years later. At the time of her disappearance, she was separated from her husband. Her four-year-old son lived with relatives, and her ex-husband moved to Wyoming. Okay. This is kind of all we know about her uh, personal life. By the way, I want to note that my mom suggested this story. Really? Yeah. Your mom? Mine, not yours. Okay. <laughs> Just to clarify. Yeah. <laughs> She's mine. Okay. okay. So, um, as the fireworks went off that night, because it was 4th of July, no one could find her. Officers and a helicopter crew searched for her the next day, but couldn't find her. Wait, helicopters the next day? Yeah, like, the, because it's in, like, Davis County over (laughs) by Highway 89. There's mountains. (laughs) Oh. So, a helicopter was looking for her in, like, the mountainous area, while police officers searched, like, the grounds. Yeah, I just... Usually they don't, like, bring out the big guns until days later. Yeah. It seems like, anyway. Yeah, they took it really seriously really early. But I'll tell you why. Okay. Is she a white female? Yes. Oh. In fact. That's probably why. Yeah. Um, so, Nancy was only 23 years old, 5'3", and 100 pounds. She had hazel eyes, reddish blonde, long, straight hair. She was wearing blue shorts, a blue halter top, and a light blue pinch-striped smock with the Fina gas station symbol. So she basically looked like a 70s young girl. Yeah. Kind of, like, her pictures actually remind me of our grandma. Oh, really? You know how she had, like, long straight hair, and she was, like, really tiny. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... She was also known to wear a small ruby ring on her pinky finger. There was no evidence of robbery and no evidence of a struggle. They did know about $10 worth of gasoline uh, was missing, like, wasn't paid for at the pump. (laughs) Fun fact, a gallon of gas in 1975 in today's money was 57 cents a gallon. Wow. In today's money. But at the time, it was $1.87. But inflation. Yeah. Um, must be nice. So, her car was still in the parking lot. Her purse, keys, and money were still inside the gas station. The witnesses, or there were witnesses that remembered seeing a truck at the station, but it's never been clear if that truck had anything to do with her case. My first thought was that it was the ex-husband, but investigators did question him, and he was in Wyoming at the time. Um... 
They also interviewed two male friends, but they were also out of the state at the time, uh, traveling. So there was no motive that they could find and no evidence. And it wasn't a robbery because they didn't steal her stuff. They she's stole just her. missing. She's just gone. Yeah. There's no, like, body either. Yeah, so. there's no signs of a struggle at all. So uh, maybe she went willingly, maybe. But she had a four-year-old son, so everyone said there's no way she would have gone willingly because she was a mom. Yeah. Um, yeah. So authorities began to suspect maybe Nancy was a victim of the notorious serial killer Ted Bundy, who was in the area at the time. But her abduction doesn't really fit his profile of his other crimes. He didn't have a truck, and Ted Bundy never kidnapped anyone from a gas station. But he kidnapped all kinds of other people in other areas, so that makes no sense. Okay. The case still remains unsolved. I don't like that. Yeah, in 2013, 2010 to 2013-ish, detectives attended a cold case crime conference and reopened and quietly started working on on Nancy's 40-plus-year-old case. Um, there was a time that two Utahns in Castle Rock, Colorado thought they saw Nancy at a grocery store two months after she vanished, but that tip led nowhere. But Ted Bundy did spend some time in Colorado. Also, Ted Bundy basically immediately killed all of his, uh, victims. Here's a, here's a theory. I know you haven't gotten that far yet, but what if... Like, what if Ted Bundy had a victim with him at the gas station, and she was a witness, so he took her too? Maybe. But Ted Bundy normally would take his victim, immediately kill them. Mm-hmm. Like, not take them to, like, a secondary... He wouldn't, like, like travel a, around with them. He, if he... Yeah. If he, they did, he did take them to a second location, but didn't... It wasn't, like, a gas station do pit stops. Right. Let's see. So, detectives are still considering the possibility that Nancy was among Ted Bundy's victims. You'll often see Nancy's name in the suspected victim list of books, stories, and other things regarding Ted Bundy, but there's no solid evidence to prove it. So, with that said, let's talk about Ted Bundy. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Ted Bundy is a name known across the U.S. as a killer who hid in plain sight. No one would have suspected Theodore Robert Bundy of being the monster that he was. Theodore. Yeah. I didn't know his name was Theodore. Yeah. I don't think most people just kind of go automatically the name Ted. Yeah. I would call him Theody. Theody. Okay. (laughs) Um, He was kind, charismatic, intellectual... But behind all behind all of that, he was a sadistic sociopath. Sadistic asshole. Yeah, he's psycho. That's what he was behind closed doors. Yep. Um, so you've likely seen all the amazing films on Netflix <laughs> starring Zac Efron called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. You've probably also seen the docuseries Conversation. Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Did you watch that? I don't think I did. It's unsettling. 
Because I always feel like if you hear recordings of a killer, it's like, I don't know. It like gives me chills, like, mm -hmm, to hear them talking. Yeah, because it's like, you're, oh, you're real. Like, yeah. you're a human. You're not just a story. Like, you, you know? Right, yeah. Um, like, you have thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> like, you are literally that crazy. Like, he's just this freaking psycho. Gosh. Um, this is a story so well known and still so unbelievable that I'm pretty sure no one will mind me telling it again. Okay. Um, except I probably didn't do it justice because it's almost a play-by-play -play of the Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> as, but with our commentary. But I'm so. just gonna try not to do it verbatim. It's just one of those things that it's like, it's so well known that you can't like make it different than Go what's already script. out there. Yeah. 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 Um, so have fun if you want to follow along the Wikipedia page. <laughs> okay. I tried really hard to make it. Well, no, this you had a bunch of other sources, so it's not going to be just that. Yeah, but mostly so. that. Okay, <laughs> anyway. So Ted Bundy was born under the name Theodore Robert Cowell, Cowell. on November 24th, 1946. His mother was Eleanor Louise Cowell, and she gave him. Or she gave birth to him at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. His father, unknown to this day. Actually, for a lot of Ted's life, he didn't even know his mother was his mother. Um, he was raised by his grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell, and was told that they were his parents. Um, and his mother posed as his sister. What? Because she was so young. You know, I forgot all about Ted Bundy and his background. That's wild, right? Um, according to biographer and true crime writer Anne Rule, who knew Ted personally, he didn't find out who his real mother was until around 1969 at 23 years old. Whoa. Yeah, he resented his mother for not talking to him about his father and that he had to find out that she was his mom. Really? Um, so was she just, like, really young? Yeah. Imagine it kind of seems like how how should I put it? It kind of seems like she was young and it was not okay to be hello, dude. Yeah, but it seems like at the time it was like shameful to have a ba baby out of wedlock, right? And so to hide that, they had it under a ruse that it was the grandparents who were his parents. I wonder if that's the grandparents' idea. It yeah. probably was. Wow. And the and his mom, his actual mom, um, was saying that she was seduced by a war veteran that she met and once right after she became pregnant he bailed. Like they yeah. just don't know what really happened or like what happened. Anyway. Right. So um in 1950 when Ted was four years old, his grandmother slash mother Louise left his grandfather Samuel who was insane and, and abusive and honestly like Ted later said that he looked up to his grandfather okay. but he was psycho that was his role model yeah so she took Ted with her after she left Samuel she took Ted with her from Philadelphia to Tacoma Washington to live with cousins so she yeah she left and then just like changed her name to her maiden name and kind of just had to hide and get away from that guy 
1951, Louise met Johnny Culpepper Bundy, a hospital cook, at a singles night at a local church. Uh, they married later that year, and Johnny adopted Ted. Ted didn't like Johnny, no. just because he was like, you're not my dad, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and I'm sure that the lifestyle was completely different. Yeah. And he's like, this is not what I'm used to. Right. Hey, we've been here before. Yeah. So, Johnny and Louise, his stepdad, or step dad, grandpa, and his grandma mom <laughs> um, right. always tried to include Ted in their family outings. Between the two of them, they had four more children, but Ted was distant and didn't like his stepfather. Um, Did his stepdad know that he, who his mom really was? I don't know. Oh. I'm sure. But he said, so he said about his stepfather that he wasn't very bright and didn't make much money, so he thought he wasn't worth the time. Wow. Um, so... As an adolescent, Ted said that he would wander the community in Tacoma, Washington, drinking and peeping into windows to watch women undress. Socially, he said he chose to be alone because he was unable to understand interpersonal relationships. He said, quote, I don't know what made people want to be friends. I don't know what underlay so or I don't I don't know what underlay social interactions. Though his classmates from high school all described him as well-known and well-liked. That's interesting. Yeah, he's he's charismatic, but didn't socially understand relationships. He's like, I know you guys like me, but I don't know why, why <laughs> yeah. and why I should like you. Yeah. Huh. Um, so, Ted graduated high school in 1965. He started out at University of Puget Sound. I don't know. And then, after a year, he transferred to University of Washington to study Chinese. In 1967, he became romantically involved with a classmate by the pseudonym Stephanie Brooks. I'm not sure if that's her real name or she wanted her real name out of it. The next year, he dropped out of college and tried to hold on to minimum wage jobs. He volunteered at Seattle at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. Oh my gosh, I can't read. It's like I, I can read, <laughs> but I <laughs> but can't. When you're reading a say lot it. out loud, it, it gets hard. Yeah, it's all mumbled and jumbled. Yeah. So he helped out with that presidential campaign, and then became a driver and bodyguard for Arthur Fletcher during his campaign for lieutenant governor of Washington State. So he is involved in politics, but more in the background okay. um, as a volunteer. But Stephanie broke up with him still because of his lack of ambition and because he was immature. Psychiatrist, psychiatrist uh, Dorothy Lewis believed this was the pivotal time in his development. I mean, could you imagine, no offense to anybody that's in this profession, but could you imagine dating someone who's volunteering for a political campaign? Politics suck. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's all you have to talk about. Right. You know, and if they're not making a lot of money, and they're just volunteering, it's like, get a job. Yeah, it's like, you know, there's more important things to worry about for yourself. Like, yeah. sure, there might be important, like, topics and stuff going on, but it's also like, pick yourself up first before... Yeah. Anyway. I do think though that like people do the volunteering like I don't think he did it I mean he should have got a job but they do that to get their foot in the door so 
when you are oh, like for your politics. resume or whatever. Yeah, I guess I could see that. Um, so, but Stephanie broke up with him. He was brokenhearted and went on a road trip. I mean, I would too. Yeah. He traveled through Colorado, visited relatives in Arkansas and Philadelphia. He even enrolled for one semester at Temple University in that area. During this road trip, it's believed that this is when he went to the office of birth records in Burlington and found out who his mom was. Oh. So, he was just full of emotional trauma. Yeah. Broke up with his, or his girlfriend broke up with him, and then he found out his mom isn't his mom, and that his mom is his sister. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so he returned to Washington in the fall of 1969. This is when he met his longtime on and off again love interest, Elizabeth Klopfer. Okay. Um, she was a single mom from Ogden, Utah. Bundy actually became somewhat of a father figure to Elizabeth's daughter, Molly, who was three years old when they met. In 1970, Ted enrolled in. University of Washington. He studied psychology, if you can believe it. And then the next year, he took a job at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center, which is where he met Anne Rule. She's Anne Rule is the one from before. Um, she's a biography writer and or biography and true crime writer. So she met him when they worked at this crisis center the hotline crisis center and became friends like she didn't realize who he was but she at the time was a former police officer and aspired to become a true crime writer i see um but she ended up writing tendy tendies (laughs) bundy's biography the stranger beside me Wow. Yeah. What an interesting perspective, right? Yeah. So, and at the time when she met him, she described him as kind and empathetic. Like, she just didn't see... She she wouldn't have um, expected him to turn out the way he was. So, he graduated from the University of Washington in 1972 and re-entered the politics world. He joined Governor Daniel Evans' re-election campaign, and once he was re-elected, he was hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, a chairman of the Washington State Republic Party. Um, In early 1973, Bundy was accepted into law schools of UPS, I don't remember what that acronym is for, and U of U, really mostly because of the recommendation letters from the political guys that he was working with as well as his psychology professors and they all respected him and thought he was professional and charismatic yeah and he saw potential in him yeah but his his LSAT scores were pretty average and not anything to be excited about but what got him into these law schools or at least accepted to these law schools was the letters of recommendation were so highly like promoting him yeah. In the summer of 1973, Ted went on a trip to California on a Republican Party stuff, and he rekindled his relationship with Stephanie, who broke up with him before. He was, or she, I guess she was impressed with his growth and transformation, and was like, wow, you really got your shit together, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so he was, I mean, getting into law school, and he was working in politics, and well-respected by these higher-up politicians, and she's like wow, like, you really turned it around. Right. Uh, Let's see, at the time that he rekindled things with Stephanie, he was also still seeing Elizabeth, the single mom. Oh, okay. Um, So neither of them knew that they existed. Like, they didn't uh, know. 
not only did he date them both at the same time, but him and Stephanie were even talking about marriage. Oh no. Um, he introduced her to people and his political friends as his fiance when he she visit, visited him for Christmas. So, so basically, randomly, he ghosted her, completely just stopped talking to her. And she would call, and she would She's like, write yeah, letters. We're getting married. Yeah, and he just ghosted her, and then eventually he picked up the phone, and she was like, "What the hell, Ted? Like, what is going on?" Yeah, and he just said, really like cold. He said, "Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean," and hung up. What? And never talked to her again. What? Right. So. So do we get an explanation for that? Like, did he like get caught? No, and he didn't was... get caught. He just said later, when he was being interviewed by his people, yeah. um, he said, quote, I just want to prove, or wanted to prove to myself that I could have married her. And Stephanie was pretty convinced that he intentionally planned this, get really serious, and then he was going to dump her, ghost her, for revenge for her breaking up with him a few years before. So she was, like, looking back in retrospective, he, he did that on purpose. Wow. Yeah. That's like, like, long game revenge. Yeah. Long, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be able to fake that you love someone enough to marry them and then just be like, peace. And the drama. Yeah, he is know. petty. He is yeah. petty as fuck. I feel like, like that's is. something that you would hear, like, on, like, a Kardashian episode or something, <laughs> right. you know? But it's like... No, he like he thought of that, right? Oh my gosh! Um, so he goes, he goes to Stephanie around 1974, and at this time, Ted stopped going to his law classes. Like he just kind of stopped doing what he was aspiring to do. Yeah. And conveniently, that's when women began to disappear in the area. So January 4th, 1974, Bundy entered the basement of Karen Sparks, 18 years old, a dancer and student at University of Washington. He used a metal rod from her bed frame and bludgeoned Karen to death. He sexually assaulted her with a metal object. They think it could have possibly been the same rod, causing extensive internal injuries. She was unconscious for 10 days after. Oh my gosh. She survived, but she has permanent physical and mental disabilities um, due to the injuries from her attack. Mental disabilities. Yeah. Like, holy cow. Yeah, he left her in a very, as a de- very different person. Yeah. On the morning of February 1st, Bundy broke into the basement room of Linda Healy a University of Washington undergrad who broadcasted morning radio weather reports. He beat her unconscious, dressed her in blue jeans, a white blouse, and boots, and she disappeared. Like, he dressed her up and then took her. That's weird. Like, in her own clothes? Yeah. Like, it's freaking weird. He's such a psycho. On March 12th, Donna Manson, 19 years old, student at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, She left her dorm to go to a jazz concert on campus and never made it there. April 17th, Susan Rancourt disappeared while walking to her dorm after an evening advisors meeting at Central Washington State College in Ellensburg, Washington. Um, Two witnesses at the time did report seeing a man with a sling near the dorms who was asking for help carrying a load of books to his town Volkswagen Beetle. Oh, I forgot about this part of this story where he has, like, identities and... 
Yeah. He, like, has... He usually, like, makes sure there's something that he needs help with yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Which so. makes me never want to offer... I mean, offering help is different than someone asking for help. Now I'm yeah. going to be like, no. <laughs> right, yeah. Sorry. What do you do if someone's like, oh my gosh, my arm... Can you help doesn't me? ...doesn't work. <laughs> I need help opening this door. What are you going to do? Not do it. Run. Say sorry. I Panic, run the other... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um... So May 6th, Roberta Parks left her dorm at Oregon State University in Corvallis. I don't know where that is. Washington? Oregon. <laughs> Corvallis, Oregon. I don't know how to read. To have coffee with friends at the Memorial Union, but again, never made it. Police from Seattle and King County were freaking out. There wasn't much evidence. It was a time before DNA, and missing women didn't have any obvious connections of, like, like knowing the same people or going to the same college. They're all over, right? The only similarities were that they were young, attractive, white college girls with long hair parted in the middle. This okay. is why I'm keeping the middle, or the side part. I don't even have a part. I just let my hair do what it wants. <laughs> June 1st, Brenda Ball, who is 22, disappeared after leaving the Flame Tavern in Burien. She was last seen in the parking lot talking to a man in a sling. June 11th, Georgianne Hawkins disappeared while walking down a brightly lit alley between her boyfriend's dorm and her sorority house. The next morning, homicide detectives and a criminalist combed the area in their on their hands and knees and found nothing. So at this point, though, they gotta at least be able to connect a man with a sling. Right. Yeah, they're starting to get kind of pull that together. But I mean, that was all they had, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bundy actually later admitted that he lured Georgianne to his car, knocked her unconscious with a crowbar handcuffed her and drove her to another city where he strangled her and spent the entire night with her body. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He even Ew. returned to the scene of the crime where intense crime scene investigation was happening, located Georgian's earrings and a shoe in the neighboring parking lot and got away undetected. He admitted to revisiting her corpse three different times afterwards. Oh my goodness. Yeah. After Georgian's disappearance was on the news, witnesses told police that they saw a man in an alley behind a nearby dorm using crutches had a late cast and was struggling to carry a briefcase. One woman said she remembered him asking her to carry the case to his car in a light tan Volkswagen Beetle. So during this time, if you can believe it, Ted was working in Olympia as an assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission. He even wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. Wow. Like, he was... He became an expert at it, so he can figure out ways to get away with it. He just, like, put himself in, like, trusting positions. Like, he would work in areas that, like, you wouldn't expect a criminal to work in. Like... Right. Hiding in plain sight. Yeah. So freaking... It is disturbing. It gets... It gets so worse, though. Okay. Then later, he worked at the Department of Emergency Services that helped search for missing women so like he's just putting himself in these like like these areas that relate to each other yeah you know Ugh, is so it weird. like do you think part of it was that he wanted to watch from the sideline uh, possibly i think he just liked that he was getting away with it because he's a trusted person and he's you know working at all these like um 
places that help people and so like he would never be suspected of this like he's right. getting away with it and I think he enjoyed that so this um, Department of Emergency Services is where he meets and starts dating a woman named Carol Boone and she comes back later but okay. anyway so she he starts dating Carol Boone Anyway, so needless to say, college-aged women were scared. Law enforcement was under pressure to find their perpetrator. But again, they didn't have much evidence other than the Volkswagen Beetle and someone wearing a sling. Okay. Um, and at the time, there were all, a lot of <laughs> Volkswagen Beetles, right, in the 70s. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like it's pretty spread out. Right? Yeah. So, let's see. They said they could see his patterns, though. Disappearances were mostly at night. Uh, near ongoing construction work within a week of midterms and finals. Um, all victims were wearing slacks or blue jeans, and each witness, saw, you know, saw a man in a cast driving a Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah, and all the women yeah. appeared to have the same, like, look. Yeah, the same style, the same hair, and, right. yeah. So, July 14th, in broad daylight, so he's kind of changing his M.O., at a crowded Lake Sammamish State Park beach in Issaquah, I don't know how to say it, five witnesses described an attractive young man approach a group of women in white, a white tennis outfit, and his arm was in a sling. He introduced himself as Ted and asked for help unloading a sailboat from his car, the Volkswagen Beetle. Um, pretty much everyone said no thank you yeah. <laughs> but one girl was like no I'll help you and he got to and when they got to his car she saw that there was a sailboat on it and she booked it she ran off so because she, she was like you think that he would have his whole story together like come help me get a boat off my car yeah. but here's my boat that or my car that doesn't have a boat on it right. like idiot okay so, three others saw the same guy approach, a woman named Janice Ott, who is 23, with the same sailboat story and watched her walk away with him, and she was never seen again. Oh, Only four hours later, Denise Nasland, 19, left a pic picnic to go to the restroom and never returned. Four hours? Yeah. So, King County Police finally had a description of the car, and this was apparently the time before police talked to each other about anything. Yeah. A composite sketch was made and distributed to newspapers and broadcasted on TV. Elizabeth, the one with the daughter, right, his girlfriend of many, and Rule, his friend from work, a, a DES employee, so the Department of emergency services that he worked with and a psychology professor that knew him from University of Washington. All of these people saw the sketch, the description, the profile, the car, and they all reported Ted Bundy as a suspect. But detectives were getting up to 200 tips a day and Ted Bundy didn't fit a monster. He was clean cut. He was a law student and he had no criminal record. So, and I feel like this is how Ted's uh, whole case got a lot of its like um, attention. He yeah, just because he was not what you would expect. Right. I mean, I don't think he was attractive by any means. No, I don't think so either. In my opinion, but uh, that's just me. I guess in the seventies, so that was just kind of the the look. look. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um. Okay. So September sixth. 
two hunters came across the skeletal remains of Janice and Denise near a service road in Issaquah, just two miles from the beach where they disappeared from. An extra femur and several vertebrae found at the same location were identified as belonging to George Ann, one of his other victims. Six months later, forestry students from Green River Community College discovered the skulls and mandibles of Linda Healy, Susan Rancourt, Roberta Parks, and Brenda Ball all on Taylor Mountain, a favorite hiking spot for Ted. Oh, wow. Donna Manson's remains have not been recovered. So, he moved. <laughs> he moved his activities elsewhere. In August 1974, Ted received a second acceptance letter from the U of U Law School in Salt Lake City and moved here. He continued to talk to Elizabeth over the phone. Um, they were still technically dating and together as far as she was concerned. Yeah. But he was playing the field of young Mormon girls here in the Beehive State. Ugh. He didn't like his law classes because he realized the other students had an intellectual capacity that he didn't. Um, he was very self-conscious about that. Not long after Ted entered Utah, women began to disappear. September 2nd of that same year, 1974, Bundy raped, strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho and disposed of the body immediately in a nearby river. October 2nd, so he does this monthly thing. Well, I, he kind of like waits a couple weeks and then he does it again. So yeah. October 2nd, he abducted 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox in Holiday, Utah. Bundy said her body was buried near Capitol Reef National Park, but they were never able to find her. October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, 17, a daughter of a police chief in Midvale, disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor. Her nude body was found in a nearby mountainous area nine days later. Wow, what a scary time. Right? Post-mortem examination when they did find her body, uh, they indicated that she could have remained alive up to seven days after her body was dumped. Seriously? So she was still alive when he dumped her body. Um, so he wasn't even like making sure that they were out he was just like oh, i'll leave you however i leave you well that i think that was the only case of that oh. um but still unfortunate um october 31st lara ann aim 17 disappeared out of lehigh after leaving a cafe after midnight her new bo nude body was found by hikers in the American Fork Canyon on Thanksgiving Day. Wow. Both Laura and Melissa had been found beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with a nylon stocking. He later explained that he even shampooed their hair and put makeup on them after they had died. What? Yeah, he's psycho. I feel like I remember that part of, uh, what show was it with, uh, Zac Efron? Yeah. I remember that part of it. Freaking gross. November 8th, Carol DeRanch was approached by Bundy at the Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah. He identified himself as Officer Roseland of Murray Police Department and told Carol that someone had attempted to break into her car. He asked her to go with him to the station to file a complaint. He got in his car and, or she got in his car and told him that he was driving the opposite way of the police station. She was freaked out and was like, you're not going where you said we're going. Yeah. And he quickly pulled to the side of the road and tried to handcuff her. Uh, during the struggle, he ended up putting both handcuffs on the same wrist and she was able to open the door and escape. Um, 
right? Later that night, Deborah Kent was leaving Vermont High School in Bountiful. Um, she was at a play, and she had to pick up her brother, but she never showed up to pick him up. The school's drama teacher had a student, or sorry, the school's drama teacher and a student told police that a stranger had asked them to come to the parking lot and identify a car. A different student said she saw the same guy pacing in the back of the auditorium and the drama teacher saw him again close to when the play ended. The investigators actually found a key that unlocked the handcuffs left on Carol when she escaped. So they knew that the guy that was that that tried to kidnap Carol Durant tried or is the one who likely took Deborah Kent. In November, Elizabeth called his girlfriend. I feel like I, there are so many women's names in here, it's hard to keep track. But right. In November, Elizabeth called King County Police again after reading about the young woman disappearing from Salt Lake City. She knew it couldn't be a coincidence that wherever Ted went, women were going missing. Yeah. So, uh, Detective Randy Hergesheimer? I'm that sorry. That sounds right. Her, Hergesheimer. <laughs> Yep. Hergesheimer. It sounds more and more right. The more, <laughs> the more I say Hergesheimer. Uh, no, that's not it. Okay. Um, so he was a detective in the Major Crimes Division, and he interviewed her, getting as much information about Ted as he could. So he did become a spe- suspect, but the witnesses from the Lake Sammamish situation, the witnesses from there, they couldn't identify him in a photo lineup, so they kind of dropped him as a suspect. So in December, Elizabeth decided to contact the Salt Lake City Sheriff's Office and explained, I've been trying to tell you guys that this is an issue. Yeah. This is the guy who's doing it. Uh And he became a suspect, but they couldn't find any evidence as to why it would be him. And he dropped from their suspect list as well. For some reason, these fools are not listening to Elizabeth. It's like they're gi- they're being given the answer. Yeah. And they're like, uh, we don't like that answer. Though I love Elizabeth, though, because she, even though she was dating this guy, she was like, I have a suspicion, and she said something. She didn't kind of just, like, let him... Yeah. Like, her her suspicions just stay with her. She said something. And if they would have just listened to her, it would have saved so many lives. Yeah, probably. Though, it's hard to say that because as a police officer, you can only go off of so much. You can't just arrest him because he, you know... Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. still guidelines yeah. and stuff you have to follow. But, but still. <laughs> but still, you think that there would be, like... Something? Some kind of loophole where they're like, you know, this... This squeaky wheel has been squeaking enough. Let's give it some grease, (laughs) you know. For real. So, January 1975, Ted returned to Seattle and spent a week with Elizabeth. She kept it to herself that she had reported him three different times. Yeah, Um, And she even made plans to visit him in Salt Lake City. So, I think she was like, if the police aren't seeing it, maybe it's not him. Like, she's like, he matches the description. How is he not... But, but they couldn't, so she was probably trying to say, okay, it must not be him, I'm, like, seeing things type of thing, right? Yeah, but, like, that would be, that would be very stressful, yeah. I think, because it's like, am I crazy, or am I on, like, am I on to something? Right. 
that'd be such a hard place to be I feel like especially if you're dating that person <laughs> right not even just like being related to them you know right. like you're not forced to be around them yeah huh. so Ted got bored of Utah and shifted his activities to Colorado on January 12th Karen Campbell disappeared while walking down a well-lit hallway between the elevator and her room um, she was at the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass Village uh so a like ski resort her nude body was found a month later next to a dirt road outside the resort she had been killed by blunt trauma to her head and also had deep cuts from a sharp weapon uh, march 15th ski instructor julie cunningham disappeared while walking from her apartment to a dinner date with a friend and she never showed up bundy later admitted that he approached julie on crutches and asked her to carry his ski boots to his car he then clubbed her, handcuffed her, sexually assaulted her, and strangled her at a different location. Apparently, weeks later, he made si the six-hour drive from Salt Lake City to visit her body. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. Um, April 6th, Denise Oliverson disappeared near the Utah-Colorado border in Grand Junction while riding her bike to her parents' house. Her bike and sandals were found later near a railroad bridge. May 6, Dawn Culver, 12 years old, was lured from her junior high school by Bundy in Pocatello, Idaho. He drowned her in his hotel room and disposed of her body in a river north of Pocatello. Jeez. Like, Some, yeah. so many people. So many. And all different, I mean, they're young women, but he's even, like, going to children. Which and, like, is branching out weird. like where they are. Yeah, like, he's all over doing. the place. Yeah. Somehow he still had the time to socialize with his co-workers from DES, including including Carol Boone, who is like kind of a girlfriend. Uh, he spent a week with Elizabeth, his other girlfriend, where they discussed marriage, and another girl he was dating in Utah. He's just like a player of the yeah. West Coast. Yes. June 28th, Susan Curtis disappeared from the BYU campus in Provo. Her murder became Bundy's last confession before his execution years later. The bodies of Nancy Wilcox, Deborah Kent, Julie Cunningham, Delise Oliverson, Don Culver, and Susan Curtis were never found. September 1975, Ted Bundy was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He even, even though he was not an active participant in any of the services and basically broke all the rules, killing people, drinking alcohol, adultery, and drinking caffeine were some of the examples of how he didn't live up to the standards of LDS living. How did he get to be baptized then? Because don't you have to be good to be baptized? Yeah, I mean, he, I'm sure he lied. And it washes away your sins. In Washington State, investigators were still struggling to understand how the killing spree experienced in 1974 ended as abruptly as it started. And because between the states, they didn't really communicate with the like each police department. There wasn't a big database at the time to like see other things happening in other areas. Yeah. So they're like, how did it start? Killed like half a dozen girls and then just stopped. They didn't know he had moved somewhere else. Yeah. They're just like, where did this go? Like, where is this guy? Right, right. Um, so they compiled a database in the case, or of the case information they had acquired 
from their investigations um, using this massive, like, primitive machine. So they were just, like, using what they could to try to build this database. And they started to use that to narrow down um, individuals with the name Ted who owned a VW Beetle. They ended up compiling a list of 100 suspects. It's a pretty small list if you yeah. think about it. Luckily, Ted Bundy was on that list, okay. um, but, I mean, they still went through the list and didn't... I mean, they would have to go through, like, all the Ted's, yeah. all the Theodore's. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, okay. So, August 16th, 1975, Ted Bundy was arrested by a Utah Highway Patrol officer named Bob Hayward in Granger, Utah. Um, Officer Hayward observed Ted's VW Beetle cruising a residential area at a slow speed, and basically, once he saw the police officer, he booked it. Like, he sped away. And so, I mean, he, <laughs> uh, the police officer was like, that's suspicious, and pulled him over. Once he pulled Bundy over, he noticed the front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the back seats. He decided to search the car for because sus- it's kind of weird. He found a ski mask, pantyhose mask, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, coil of rope, an ice pick, and other suspicious items. Oh, an ice pick. Right. Bundy said the ski mask was just for skiing. He found the handcuffs in a dumpster somewhere, and the rest were just stuff from his house. <laughs> sure. <laughs> he had it in his car. So oh, he, the guy was like, yeah, that's weird. Um, so once the word got to Detective Jerry Thompson about this guy and his weird stuff in his car, he recognized the car description from Carol Durant's disappearance and the call from Elizabeth about Ted. So she, he's like, okay, hold on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They're, the pieces are coming together. So they searched Ted's apartment, and the police found a guide of Colorado ski resorts with a check mark next to the Wildwood Inn, where he mm-hmm. killed one of the other women. So he planned all of it out. Yeah, and he all, they also found a brochure that advertised the Beaumont High School play where Deborah Kent disappeared. But it's all circumstantial, and they were forced to release Bundy. So after he was released, he went and got his hidden collection of Polaroid photos of his victims um, that the search team had missed. So, Salt Lake City police put Bundy on a 24-hour surveillance because they knew it was him, but they couldn't quite prove it yet. Yeah. Detective Thompson flew to Seattle to interview Elizabeth, who had reported him. Mm -hmm. Uh, She told them that she found weird things in her apartment and Ted's apartment, that she couldn't really understand. Like, she found crutches, a meat cleaver that he never used for cooking, surgical gloves, oriental knife in a wooden case, and a stack of women's clothing. Almost everything he owned was stolen, and if she would point it out, he would threaten her and say, if you ever tell anybody, I'm going to effing kill you. What the hell? Yeah. Ooh. So she also explained that he would become very upset if he if she wanted to cut her hair. I mean, that's one thing to, like, steal, like, your neighbor's generator and, like, say, don't tell anyone. But if you're stealing, like, women's clothing and, like, things that are, like, personal items that you clearly don't have any real use for. Yeah. That is all the red Well, like, he would steal, like, TVs and stuff like that, too. Like, he was kind of basically stealing any possession that he owned was, was stolen. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was just, like, more trophies than... Well, he also had those, but yeah. she didn't realize that's what they were. I see. 
Um, she also explained that he would become very upset if she wanted to cut her hair. Like, he wanted it to stay long, blonde, parted in the middle. Um, which I have to tell you that that, when I first learned of Ted Bundy's stuff as an adolescent, which is kind of weird, um, I, it freaked me out that there could be something about me that a, a killer idolized of someone else but I resembled that in any way that I would be a target. Yeah. And I was like, how do I hide myself from the world? <laughs> like, yeah. how do I make myself invisible to killers? And it's like, it's just that whatever they fantasize about or whatever, like, obsession they have, it could be anything. And if you fit that description, you're po- a possible target. And that freaked me the hell out. I didn't be- want to leave my house. It could be as simple as, like, the color of car that you drive or, like, yeah. where you shop or, like... You're wearing a certain color shirt. Yeah. Like, anything. Anything. It's like, freaking oh, your scary. your eyes are blue. Yep. yep. Blonde, blue eyes. I yep. don't have to be attractive, but if I've got those, it could be the end of my life, right? Yeah. It's scary. Okay. So, he basically killed women with her description. He never hurt her, but he would kill women with her description. That's got to be its own psychological torment after the fact. Yeah. Especially, like, looking at pictures of yourself. Yeah. Being, like, that's what he saw and was inspired by. Yeah. Well, I don't think she was blonde. I think I misspoke. She just had really long, straight, but it was part of it in the middle. Yeah. Okay, so she would sometimes wake up in the middle of the night to him shining a flashlight under the blankets, examining her body. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Um, the detectives confirmed that Ted was never with her the nights of the disappearances. After her interview with Detective Thompson from Salt Lake City, Elizabeth also interviewed with Detective Kathy McChesney from Seattle Homicide, where she learned of the existence of his other girlfriend, Stephanie Brooks, that he ghosted, right? Right. So he was like, I never knew she existed, and they were almost married, so what the hell? Like, she was just like, this is weird. Like, he's he's a different guy no matter where he goes, right? Right. Um, so Bundy was pretty busy during this time. He got rid of his VW Buttle... Buttle? Oh. Uh, okay. VW <laughs> Beetle by selling it to a Midvale team, but since the police were surveilling him, they impounded the car and from the team like they were like sorry dude yeah gotta take the car you just bought so they impounded it for evidence the fbi were able to find hair in the car matching karen campbell one of his victims they also identified strands of hair matching melissa smith and carol Duranch, and Duranch was the girl who uh survived right yeah october 2nd detectives put bundy into a lineup where carol Duranch was able to immediately identify him as the person who identified themselves as Ro- officer roseland right. and the witnesses from the viewmont high school play were able to identify him as the stranger pacing the auditorium i feel like that would be so hard to be called in for like a lineup to be right. like yeah that's the person i saw because like what if what if you're like pretty sure and then like you go home that night and you're like I think they actually, uh, yeah, because the other guys, I think, are, like, either other inmates or they're volunteers. So if they identify the wrong person who's not even closely involved, they know that that's not the guy. They, I don't think they put, like, other suspects in the same lineup. Mm. 
That would make sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That would make me feel better as somebody that's like trying to point them out. It's like, what if I, what if that innocent man over there didn't do anything? Right. You know? So Ted Bundy was charged with aggravated kidnapping, attempted criminal assault on the Durange case, but he was freed on fifteen thousand dollar bail that was paid by his parent grandparents. <laughs> While he was out on bail before his trial on the Durange case, he spent most of his time with Elizabeth in Seattle. Which I'm like, Elizabeth, what are you doing? Can I keep going? I don't know. I can't. Where are we going? Because are we going to get in trouble? I don't know. I mean, what are they going to do? Tell us to leave? It's not like we haven't been through that before. We're really good at saying, okay, (laughs) we'll we'll leave. No! (laughs) We could also just pull over on a... Let's go all the way up here on the side where it says stop. And we'll just stop and say, we stopped before that. We did what it said. We're following at least these instructions. Except now there's going to be people. I saw a person. There's a person. Is she going to come and be like, what are you doing? When we tell her what we're here for, she might just be chill maybe be cool act cool act normal ufo valley campground you are here over there do you see the campground let's go to the campground so that we're not in a weird spot i'm gonna go ahead and guess where we are skinwalker ranch Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah i started watching this on hulu did you just a little bit ago i don't think i finished all of it but well Okay, should I turn around? Yeah, so we have to go back. And around the mountain. Yeah. Basically going over there, but around this mountain. Okay, well, we still have time for you to talk. Okay, yeah, I have plenty to say. Um, okay. Anyway, Elizabeth, you just need to get over it. Just get away from him. Stop talking to him. But I also wonder if, if she broke up with him, if she would then become a target. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because she has a kid, so I feel like I would be a little weary also of, like, making him mad. I could see that. So, but I also think he was charming enough that there was enough doubt also. The Seattle police were struggling to find enough evidence on him for the murders there, Uh so they had him on 24-hour surveillance also. Anytime he was in Seattle, they would be following him. In November, the three main investigators, Jerry Thompson from Utah, Robert Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fisher from Colorado, all met in Aspen, Colorado, and exchanged information with 30 other detectives and prosecutors in five different states. Wow, 30 detectives. Because they didn't have a way to, like, link everyone together yet, it seemed like. Could you imagine being in that, like, briefing like in that room and they're like yeah we have a girl missing here we have a girl missing here and it's like he oh that would be super i would i would want to be a fly on the wall for an investigation but i'd love to observe how they go about like these investigations you know what the things that they pay attention to you know what I mean? Because you always think, how did they not see that? How did yeah. they not see that? But it's like, when you're in it, sometimes you get tunnel vision on this area. Or sometimes you, like, miss one detail that's so, like, important that you don't even realize yeah. is important, you know? Right. Okay, anyway. Let's see. February 1976, Bundy stood trial for the Durant kidnapping. His attorney advised him to wait 
waive his right to a jury, so there wasn't a lot of publicity over it. After a four-day bench trial and a weekend deliberation, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. He was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. In October, he was found hiding in the bushes in the prison yard carrying an escape kit. He had roadmaps, wow. airline schedules, and a social security card. Wow. Because of this, he spent weeks in solitary confinement at the Utah State Prison. Later, in Colorado, or sorry, later in October, Colorado authorities charged him with Karen Campbell's murder, so he was transferred to Aspen, Colorado in January 1977. So in June 1977, Bundy was transported from Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen, Colorado for a preliminary hearing. He decided he wanted to represent himself as his own attorney, which allowed him to not wear handcuffs or like shackles. So because he was representing himself, he didn't have to be all shackled up. Um, During the recess, he asked to visit the courthouse law library to research his case. And when when the guards weren't looking, he opened a window and jumped to the ground from the second story and injured his right ankle on landing. So do you think that was like his plan to represent so that he could escape? Uh, I don't know. I think he just is a man of opportunity. So he shed a layer of his clothes. Uh, he was able to walk through Aspen as roadblocks were being set up surrounding Aspen, Colorado. He then hiked south to Aspen Mountain. So he has an injured ankle. Yeah. And he looks normal enough. <laughs> and he shed his, like, clothes of what was, like, kind of suspicious, right? Yeah. And And he was able to kind of get through to his hike. <laughs> he stumbled upon a hunting cabin and stole food, clothes, and a rifle. Then the next day, he left the cabin, continued south, and became lost in the forest. He wandered aimlessly on the mountain for two days. June 10th, he broke into a camping trailer on Maroon Lake, taking food and a ski parka. Instead of continuing south, he walked back towards Aspen, and he was able to elude roadblocks and search parties. So three days later, he stole a car at the edge of Aspen Golf Course. He was cold, tired, and in pain from his ankle. So he drove back to Aspen again, where two police officers noticed his car weaving all over the road. They pulled him over and were like, hey, this is the guy we've been looking for. How convenient. Like, he got out. He got away from Aspen, but he, like, went back to Aspen and got caught. Like, he's kind of stupid. Okay. It's like he's intelligent to a point. Yeah, but then, but then his decisions are like weird. But like, yeah, it's like, but why? Like, it, you would get as far away as possible as you could, right? Yeah, yeah. Then he was returned back to the Glenwood Springs Jail, where he was making yet another escape plan. <laughs> His legal advisors were trying to tell him that he was pretty close to getting the cases dropped because significant pieces of evidence were ruled inadmissible. But he wanted to escape, so that's what he was going to do. So he somehow, in the jail, he acquired a floor plan and a hacksaw blade from other inmates and accumulated $500 in cash that he smuggled over a six-month period. And it's, it's assumed that Carol Boone, his girlfriend from the DES work, that she was visiting him and smuggling him money. Really? 
Yeah. Because she believed wholeheartedly that he was innocent and thought that they were in love and like, I'm going to get you out of this. I'm going to support you through this. And she fully believed that he was innocent. Wow. In the evenings when other inmates showered, he was sawing a hole between the steel reinforcement bars in his cell ceiling and having lost 35 pounds, he could wiggle into the crawl space above his cell. Um, so he spent a few weeks practicing his escape, exploring the crawl space above his cell and even other inmates were like, there's weird sounds in my ceiling and no one looked into it. I wonder if parts of Prison Break were inspired by that. <laughs> Maybe. Because I feel like I remember that in a scene where they like they were in a crawl space. In a, like they made a hole in their cell and they were in a crawl space for like, and like they practiced it. I feel like I remember that. Yeah. Weird. And then toward the end of 1977, Bundy's trial was gaining popularity in Aspen, so he filed a motion to have it moved to Denver. December 23rd, Aspen judge granted his request and moved his trial to Colorado Springs. December 30th, most of the jail staff was out on Christmas break and nonviolent prisoners were on furlough with their families. So Bundy stuffed his bed with books and covered it with a blanket to look like he was laying in bed. He then climbed into the crawl space. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer. So the chief jailer had an apartment above the jail and he wasn't home at the time. So Bundy changed into the jailer's clothes and walked out the front door. He stole a car and drove east. The car broke down in the mountains on I-70. Passing car gave him a ride to Vail, Colorado. He then caught a bus to Denver where he boarded a flight to Chicago. Wow. So back in Glenwood Springs, the jail's small crew did not notice or realize that Ted had escaped until noon the next day, 17 hours later, and Bundy was in Chicago by that time. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. I kind of feel like we're going to have, like, technical issues. Yeah, we could. UFO yeah. area. Okay. It's definitely, like, a different looking area. Yeah. You get a different vibe. It is eerie feeling already to me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. So, from Chicago, he got on a train and headed to Michigan. Uh, then... Five days after he got to Michigan, he stole a car and drove to Atlanta. He got on a bus and then ended up in Tallahassee, Florida. Where is he going? He's escaping. <laughs> He's going everywhere. Yeah. He stayed in a hotel for a night and then rented a room under the alias Chris Hagen um, at a boarding house near the Florida State University. This guy cannot stay away from college. Good Lord. So he later explained that he hoped to stay away from any criminal activity because he could lay low in Florida. But he couldn't get a job at a construction site because they asked for identification. And he didn't have any because he wasn't, like, he wasn't really Chris Hagen. Right. So he couldn't get a job. Instead, he started stealing money and credit cards out of women's purses uh, that they left in shopping carts at the grocery store, you know, as you're shopping. He yeah. was able to slip in and grab wallets. Um, in January... <laughs> goats. Aww. January 15th, 1978, uh, one week after he got to Florida, Bundy entered an FSU sorority house. At 2.45 a.m., he bludgeoned Margaret Bowman with a piece of oak firewood as she slept and strangled her with a nylon stocking. I thought he was going to lay low in Florida. <laughs> well, he couldn't find a job, so then he kills. Then he entered the bedroom of Lisa Levy, beat her unconscious, strangled her, tore one of her nipples. What? 
bit her on her butt cheek so deep that it left a bite impression and sexually assaulted her with a hairspray can. (gasps) The next room, he attacked Kathy Kleiner, breaking her jaw and cutting her shoulder. He also attacked Karen Chandler, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. Both women did survive this attack due to car headlights shining into the window of the room, which made Bundy flee. Wow. But as he was fleeing, he was seen by another woman in the sorority house, Nita Neary. All four attacks took place in less than 15 minutes and almost no one heard anything. Once he escaped the sorority house, he broke into a basement apartment attacking another student, Cheryl Thomas. He dislocated her shoulder and fractured her jaw and skull. She survived but was left with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage. On her bed, police found a semen stain and pantyhose mask containing two hairs that they were able to later point to Bundy. February 8th, Bundy drove 150 miles to Jacksonville in a stolen university van. In a parking lot, he approached 14-year-old Leslie Parmenter, um, the daughter of a Jacksonville Police Department chief of detectives. He called himself Richard Burton from the fire department, but he ran off when Leslie's older brother showed up and confronted him. That afternoon, he went back west 60 miles to Lake City, Um, He went to a Lake City Junior High the following morning where 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach was summoned to homeroom by a teacher to retrieve a forgotten purse and never return to class. I don't know how that happens. How how does he kidnap her from a school, like inside the school? Yeah. I don't, I don't get that. Um, but seven weeks later, after an intense search, her remains were found partially mummified in a pig shed. She was raped and killed by cuts to the throat by a knife. Oh my goodness. February 12th, Bundy was running out of cash to pay for his overdue rent and was paranoid the police were closing in on him. So he stole another car, Fred fled from Tallahassee, and drove west across the Florida Panhandle. February 15th, was stopped by a Pensacola officer, David Lee, near the Alabama state line. He was told he was under arrest because there was a wants and warrants for him, I guess. So he kicked Officer Lee's leg out from under him and took off running. Officer Lee got up, shot two warning shots, and chased him down and tackled him. They struggled over Officer Lee's gun before the officer was able to pin him down and arrest him. Dang. As Officer Lee transported Bundy to jail, he actually didn't realize that he was... He just arrested one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives. He heard Bundy say, He's quote, like, yeah, I got him! Right? <laughs> he said, quote, I wish you had killed me. Um, huh. Now, Bundy had a trial in Florida because of the sorority murders and assaults. The trial was covered by hundreds of reporters in five different continents. It was the first trial to be televised nationally in the U.S. Um, The first. Yeah. Uh, Bundy was assigned five court-appointed attorneys, but he felt he could handle his defense himself because he's a narcissist and he loves attention. Right. Um, From the beginning, he, quote, sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite, distrust, and grandoise delusion, um, his attorney Nelson said, uh, that Ted was facing murder charges with a possible death sentence, and all that mattered to him apparently was that he was in charge. 
Bundy's trial was full of theatrics. He wanted to be the center of attention, and he was. Women all over the country were obsessed with this guy who was a brutal killer and rapist. And everyone was just, like, so intrigued by him and would go, like, hundreds of women would go to his court appearances and he would just, like, look over and smile at them and they were all, like, swooning. It was so disgusting. Sickening. Eyewitnesses from the sorority house testified they saw him there holding the murder weapon, physical evidence of his bite mark on the buttocks of one of the victims matched the casing made of his teeth. Which is one of the biggest things. Can't replicate that. Yeah. Like, it matched his, like, the crookedness in his Mm. teeth exactly. Yeah. The jury deliberated for less than seven hours and convicted Ted Bundy on July 24th, 1979, of the Bowman and Levy murders, three counts of attempted first-degree murder, and two counts of burglary. Six months later, another trial in Orlando for the kidnapping and murder of the 12-year-old Kimberly Leach from the school. An eyewitness testified it was him who they saw leading Kimberly from the schoolyard to the stolen van he was driving. There was physical evidence that included clothing fibers that matched the jacket he was wearing when he was arrested. They found those fibers in the van and on the girl's body. He was found guilty once again after less than eight hours of deliberation. During the penalty phase of this trial, Ted took advantage of a weird Florida law that if you declare marriage in a court in front of a judge, the judge doesn't have to say anything, it just has to be in front of a judge, then it counts as a legal marriage. So, Carol Boone, the one who thought he was... I declare... Bankruptcy! (laughs) I declare marriage! (laughs) Okay. You can't just declare something and have it it happen or whatever it says. As he was questioning Carol Boone on the stand, she was there as a character witness in his defense, right? He was, like, questioning her about the case, and he, in front of the court, asked her to marry him. She accepted, and he declared to the court that they were legally married. Is that the most romantic thing you've ever heard? That is... And she was just like, oh my gosh, and it was like... It's all theatrics. Like, he just wanted attention. He wanted to control what where attention was going to. Oh, like he I'm was... sure the media at the time was just blowing up with that. Yes. On February 10th, 1980, Ted Bundy was sentenced for a third time to death by electrocution. October 1981, Carol Boone gave birth to a daughter, Rose, How? and claimed Bundy was the father. Um, so I guess conjugal visits were not allowed in the Florida State Prison, but if you paid the guards enough, they'd look the other way. So, so while on death row, Bundy started interviews with a few different individuals, his attorneys, people who wanted to write books and whatever. So you'll hear those on the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Really fascinating, but disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to go into all of that, because I'm going to... You guys can watch it and listen. Yeah. Um, July 1984, prison guards found two hacksaw blades hidden in Bundy's cell. I want to know, how are people getting hacksaw blades into prison? Yeah. Because that happened in the other jail, as well as this jail. How are they getting access to hacksaw blades. Hide it in your pant leg, I guess. But like, wow. I don't get it. Yeah. Um, so it, he was just attempting to escape again. Like, that was the, the whole thing of it. For the fourth time. Yeah. 
October 1984, Bundy contacted Detective Keppel in Washington to share his self-proclaimed expertise in serial killer psychology. Um, and he offered to help her, uh, or help him, sorry, offered to help him, uh, with a case, like a big case in Colorado. I think it was like, um, the grand, one of the, one of the more popular, uh, serial killers, Grand Lake, Grand River, Grand River serial killer or something. Mm. And he ended up not really being helpful because they didn't catch the real killer for like a decade later or something. So his execution was scheduled for June 2nd. Leading up to it, in April, Bundy finally confessed to his attorneys what they believed was the full range of his deprecations, including details of what he did to some some of his victims even after their death. He told them that he revisited Taylor Mountain in Issaquah and another secondary location several times to lie with his victims and perform sexual acts with their bodies until decomposition forced him to stop. He just couldn't anymore. Oh my gosh. Yeah. In some cases, he drove several hours each way and remained there the entire night with their bodies in the wilderness. Ugh. In Utah, he, like I said before, he applied makeup to um, some of his victims, washed their hair, and he told his attorneys, quote, if you've got time, they can be anything you want them to be. He de- decapitated approximately 12 of his victims with a hacksaw and kept at least one group of severed heads, probably the four later found on Taylor Mountain, in his apartment for a period of time before disposing of Um. So over time, many oh appeals happened, many stays of execution. Oh. Uh, he'd make little confessions here and there to prevent his execution from happening so he'd be like oh wait i forgot to tell you something else so they would strategically play his cards it would keep being pushed out and eventually the judge was like okay we're done (laughs) like no and then even the families of the victims were like we don't need your confession we knew you did this we knew i don't need to know more details Mm -hmm. just ready for this to be over the information you're gonna give isn't gonna change what happened like yeah ever, they knew even though the families who the bodies weren't found of their their daughter or whoever they knew that mm-hmm. they were gone so yeah. carol boone um had like i said she was convinced that she that he was innocent and mm-hmm. like married him and had a baby with him but then when he started making these confessions to prevent his execution she felt deeply betrayed by him mm-hmm. and she moved back to Washington with her daughter and refused to accept his phone calls finally even on the morning of his execution he called her and she refused to talk to him so january 24th 1989 ted bundy was executed in the rayford electric chair at 7:16 a.m. his last words he directed to his attorney and a methodist minister saying quote jim and fred i'd like you to give my love to my family and friends what family and friends <laughs> like, yeah Um, citizens accumulated in a pasture across from the prison grounds. They sang, set off fireworks, danced as the execution was carried out. They all cheered when the white hearse contained Bundy's body as it left the prison. They were all, like, cheering for it. He was cremated and his ashes were scattered at an undisclosed location in the Cascade Range of Washington State in accordance with his will. Wow. Now, I'm sorry that this, like, entire thing was basically his Wikipedia page. 
but <laughs> but the story has been told so many times that the details are 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 all the same. Um, some of the victims kind of go under an alias, uh, to protect themselves, mm-hmm. but, you know, like, you can even watch on, I think, Peacock, there's, uh, and I didn't watch it, I didn't have time to, but there's, um, interviews and episodes with the survivors mm-hmm. meeting up and talking to each other about their experiences, and I did watch some clips, and it was really powerful, and I do plan on going back and watching it, but, um, when you have... You know, I, and I, no, not everyone can relate to that experience. And so it's helpful, I think, probably to have those. Have people to talk to about it. Mm -hmm. You know, feel like you aren't totally alone. Like, that could have been you. Like, yeah. Anyway, it's just, it, Ted Bundy is such a well-known killer. And, like, he's well-known for being so, like, charismatic and attractive and, like, how could he have done this? But like, it just goes to show that you need to protect yourself and you have a gut feeling about something being off. And I'm not victim blaming. I'm just saying, if you have a gut feeling, don't, you don't need to be polite. You don't need to help this injured person put their stuff in their car. Cause yeah. like, like your safety is more important than their comfort. Yeah. Like if you don't feel comfortable, don't put yourself in that position. Yeah. You have the power to, I should say, not be polite. You have the power to say no if you need, if you don't feel comfortable with yeah. with your situation you're in. Get totally. away if you're scared. Totally. Just scream Ted Bundy and run. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, it's just, it's just so scary. It was a scary time. Obviously, like, the times are better because police have tools and databases and they communicate with each other and they have this story they have dna evidence now like they from yeah it's crazy i do like to note though that once he (laughs) our our listeners in our local area may like to know that he was excommunicated from the lds church after he was charged with kidnapping carol durant so um Mm. he's no longer a member of that he uh decided or when I guess they asked him in his interviews what like religious affiliation he had and he said Methodist church that he yeah. grew up in so and he would talk to a Methodist priest before mm-hmm. he died yeah so mm-hmm. he that was the direction he went towards the end of his life but I don't think he was really interested in being a part of the LDS religion I think I he just wanted, he wanted to be a part of the community yeah and like have trust there yeah have support yeah where he could manipulate it there it is guys i did ted bundy i know someone asked for it it was exhausting i'm sure you all know it it's just such a crazy well-known story that yeah i probably didn't like do it justice or anything but everyone knows it you did great so you did great there's a whole lot of dates a whole lot of people a A whole lot of stuff to say definitely well i'm also doing a well-known story what a perfect timing what a well-known episode right (laughs) uh yeah so we're at skinwalker ranch kind of well here's my story uh and i hope we don't get kicked out i bet you wouldn't we could probably like get closer to this and they might um we wouldn't be like so awkwardly in the way yeah i know because i'm like you can even go to like more the exit so it's like they're not gonna be like what are you doing in our parking lot right right okay Yeah, this seems okay. Yeah. 
This doesn't seem like we're being weird. intruding anywhere. Yay! Okay. Awesome! Okay. Ah, we'll take pictures here because this is... Alright. <laughs> okay, so, episode 19. Uh, a couple things that I have in my notes so far is... First of all, for episode 19, happy Mother's Day, because that's tomorrow. Oh, yeah, happy Mother's Day. Yeah. We're both mommies. We're both moms. And any moms listening, happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, also, how was your birthday? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was good. Yeah? Your party was fun. Yeah, it was just chill. Mm -hmm. Just hung out. The pasta was good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Jordan turned 30. I just turned 29. We decided that we were going to get salad and breadsticks from Olive Garden and do our own pasta because mm -hmm. pasta is easy and cheap. But mm -hmm. they, for the amount of people we had there, it would have been $400 for the pasta wow. from Olive Garden. And we're wow. like, noodles. How yeah. hard is that? So we mm -hmm. tried to cook noodles. And I don't know how to cook four boxes of noodles because I usually do one for my family. Right. And I'm like, do we increase the time? Do we put them all in at once? How do we get them to not stick to each other? Like, we, yeah. we struggled. So what did you end up doing? We just made what it up. What was the technique? And then we just dumped them in and hoped for the best. <laughs> like, and, and there were, like, pieces of it that were chunky and stuck together. Mm. And so we tried to make enough pasta for 40 people, and it was just a struggle. But... Did, was there enough? I don't even there know. There was too much. Oh, we really? should have done probably two boxes. Because oh. we had breadsticks and salad, so not everyone's filling their plates with pasta. So I left with a huge baggie of leftover pasta. See, and I would have grabbed more pasta, but I think that when I went for the pasta, there wasn't that much. Oh, really? Was it all there in one pot? Or was there, like, some, like, off to the side? There were... It was all on the counter, and it was, like, a big bowl of the fettuccine noodles, and then a smaller bowl of, like, the spirals. Oh. I don't know. But, but I was like, oh, I better not grab too much. The Alfredo so. sauce was so good. It was very good. Homemade by yeah. Jordan's sister, Kennedy. Oh. And it was so good. It was very good. That I do remember. Oh my gosh. And I got leftovers and they warmed up great and I was happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. We had a good time. Yeah. Good time. Yeah. Well, we are not on Skinwalker Ranch because we can't get access, but we're at a little reservoir near nearby. Yeah. So I don't know what it's called, but here we are. What do you know about it? I know that it is notorious for weird happenings. Mm -hmm. So I watched some of the Hulu documentary on it that they're doing. I watched some of it and it was a lot of like just weird stuff mm -hmm. happened. Unexplainable things and uh, trying to find um, proof of what yeah. is there because a lot of it's unexplainable. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible and maybe assumed by a lot of people that it's extraterrestrial type yeah. like ufos or aliens yeah yeah not necessarily ghosts mm -hmm. but from what i know right so it is a huge question mark of like what the hell is going on here yeah and right? i know the government has tried to figure it out and they can't yeah so let's go back in history like i always do start from the very beginning of like the property okay. the history of the property so 
I'm not going too far back, but I kind of jump around on the timeline a little bit. So back in the mid-1930s, the property was purchased by Kenneth and Edith Myers. And after a while, they began to experience some pretty bizarre happenings. Things uh, such as their animals going missing or being injured or mysteriously winding up just dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, They began seeing strange creatures in the woods and lights in the sky. Apparently, the family had built their ranch on the land that is known by the natives to be severely cursed. So back before the ranch was built, the land was... Oh, sorry. Back before the ranch was built and the land was purchased, the Navajo tribe had a feud between... Well, so the Navajo tribe and the Ute tribe had a feud. And the reason behind that was because the Ute tribe had been going around to different tribes, like around, not necessarily Utah territory, but like just the whole West Coast. Mm-hmm. The, Utah, the Ute tribe would go around to different other tribes and steal the people, like abduct people, and then sell them to the U.S. government for, as slaves. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. I know. So the, Ute, the Navajo tribe had issues with the Ute tribe because of this. Yeah. Let me get a drink. Was it... Was it assumed that it was them, or was it proof that it was them? Do you want me to grab it? Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, it was, I think, I think it was proven, I don't oh. really know, but that's just, that's just how the story goes. I didn't really look too far into it, other than on history.com. Okay. So. Seems reliable. Yeah. Uh, so the Ute tribe was selling other tribe, other tribe. from other tribes, yeah. not the Ute tribe, but other tribes selling them as slaves to the U.S. government. Yikes. Well, the Navajo lived in this area at the time, and uh, when the Utes came to the area, they forced the Navajos out of the out of the land. Mm-hmm. And before the Navajos left, they cursed the land with what they call skinwalkers. The true origins of skinwalkers are a bit unclear because the Native American culture, or in Native American culture, skinwalkers are not to be talked about. Mm. Kind of like Voldemort. <laughs> like you don't, like you don't talk about them, because bad things might happen to you. Gotcha. So legend goes that skinwalkers were once humans that were medicine men or healers of the tribe, and they became really good at what they were doing, and they started using their gifts or their powers for evil. Okay. It's also a com- I don't know if it's a common belief, but it's at least said within the tribes that. Um, those who against those who go against their tribal taboos will eventually turn into skinwalkers when they die. So that's kind of like another origin of how skinwalkers happen. Um, how like a they come zombie to be. type, kind but, of. But if you don't follow the tribe, like your soul is cursed. Your soul is cursed to be a skinwalker. Right. Okay. Yep. Interesting. Um, and I don't know how common that belief is, but it is a belief. Uh, skinwalkers are shapeshifters, and they may take a, take the form of a coyote, a wolf, or a bear. They're apparently impossible to kill unless they're stabbed with a knife or shot with a bullet that has been rubbed with white ash. Hmm. The ranch was eventually abandoned by the original owners, Kenneth and Edith Myers. Mm-hmm. Because of all the strange things that were happening on the property, they eventually just stopped coming to the property because they're like why would we bring our our animals here if they're just going to be killed or or injured yeah 
So the ranch was eventually purchased in 1994 by Terry and Gwen Sherman. And this is where things really start to spark up, like, within the media with, mm-hmm. with what are their names? Sorry, I keep losing it. Sherry, not Sherry. Terry and Gwen Sherman. So mm-hmm. it started with them that the media really kind of got wind of what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So when they first bought the property, it was way below market value because of everything that was going on and because it was abandoned at the time. So everything was kind of in shambles. Like mm-hmm. the grass was overgrown. The homestead was not abandoned. Really, yeah, yeah, it was all abandoned. As they got a closer look at the property, though, they began noticing things that weren't quite normal with the property itself. And it started raising questions for themselves. So they noticed that in the homestead building, the windows and the doors, all of them had deadbolts on them, on the inside and the outside. That is really weird. Not only did all of the exterior doors and windows have deadbolts, but the interior doors as well. So, like, the bedrooms going from one room to another had deadbolts in it. On both sides. On both sides. Wow. So they started, like, noticing these, like, weird, quirky things about the property, being like, now why is that that way you know Mm -hmm. like why is there a barbed wire around this or why is this welded shut or why is this whatever they don't really understand it though until the day that they're moving onto the property they are there with their moving truck and people are helping them unload the truck with their with their furniture and things when terry he glanced up and was looking at like the the woods and he sees a wolf out in the distance and he's like Okay, well, I'm not, like, alarmed because he's worked on a ranch before, so predatory predatory animals weren't... Are normal. Yeah, like, yeah. he was like, okay, well, just so you guys know, there's a wolf out there. We can carry on our way, just be aware. So everybody's like, okay, cool, there's a wolf out there. But as they're noticing, like, as they're watching this wolf, they also noticed that this wolf was really, really big. Like, they said it was almost six feet long. And... Huh. They said the way that it was walking towards them wasn't a way that a normal predatory animal would behave towards, like, humans. Mm -hmm. It was walking towards them in, like, a serpentine-like motion. And, like, being very, like, brave, I guess you could call it. Like, just not not skipping away. Yeah, usually, I I mean, I shouldn't say because I don't know anything, (coughs) but wolves are normally startled by people. And, like, coyotes are startled by people. Like, they'd be a little more cautious. I think a bear would be more, like, standing their ground or something. Mm-hmm. But, like, wolves are normally, like, skittish and, like, right. get away. Right. Exactly. Weird. So, um, the wolf walks all the way up to them. So much so that one of the family members reached out their hand to, like, touch it. And it came up and brushed against the guy's hand. And they were like, that's not normal. And they're watching this wolf and they're like, is it domesticated? Like maybe it's, maybe there's an owner nearby that has a domesticated wolf. So, you know, it's acting all calm, it's walking up to them um, as if it's domesticated. And then randomly, just in this moment, this wolf then runs up to a gate where some calves and some cows are standing, runs up to a gate and reaches its head through the gate and grabs one of the calves by the neck and tries to pull it through the pen. And, you know, they're like, what just happened? Because this wolf just came up to us calmly and now it's over there attacking one of the cows. So Terry grabs his rifle and starts shooting at the wolf and the bullets are not doing anything, not affecting it at all. And eventually the wolf just lets go of the calf and scurries away into the woods and 
doesn't act injured, doesn't act surprised or startled, just like, oh, well, I can't get this cow, so I guess I'll give up and go into the woods. Hmm. So after the, the wolf scurried off into the woods, they were like, what just happened? But Terry and his son, they run off into the woods to go find it to try and kill it because it was just trying to kill their, their cows. Yeah. So they're like, you know, we, are, we want to make sure that our animals are protected. So they run into the woods to go find this wolf, and they are following these tracks in the mud, and then finally these tracks just stop, and there's no trace of this wolf. Whoa. They just stop in the middle of nowhere. Weird. So that was the first weird thing that happened to them, but they kind of shrugged it off as like, that's weird, but maybe it's normal. So they went about their way, but they were very aware that there's wolves in the area that are not afraid of humans. Mm Mm-hmm. Or guns, for that matter. Yeah. And this was only day one. So, for a few weeks, they didn't really talk about this experience. They just kind of thought it was weird, but they're like, you know, maybe there's a way to explain it. Yeah. So, but in these couple first few weeks, Gwen, she starts to have memory problems that she can't quite explain. Two instances. One time she said that she was bringing in groceries, and she brought all the bags in, put all the groceries away, went into the other room for a moment, came back out, and all the groceries were back in the bags. And she stood there, and and the documentary that I was listening to on YouTube, I believe, said that she had stood there for almost 20 minutes trying to remember, did I put those away, or did I not? Because I swear I put all the groceries away. But here they are, back in their bags. so eerie. Like, it kind of takes me back to the American Fork Canyon, where, like, those people missed three days of their lives or whatever and don't know where they what happened or how that time passed yeah that's weird though that she was kind of like it almost seemed like a lapse of time that she was like taken back like 10 minutes or something yeah it's like like how like like is it a poltergeist that's just taking all of her groceries out of her fridge and back into the bag you know or is it like you were kind of saying like a glitch in the matrix where it's like she jumped back in the timeline she would have heard them all go back into the bags maybe so i feel like it's it's the matrix yeah that same day she went to go take a shower and she hung up her towel on the hook takes her shower and she gets out and her towel is gone she's like maybe i just imagined that i did that i don't know well it wasn't until days later that she found that towel hung up in her closet on the other side of the house. And she's like, first of all, I would not hang up a towel in the closet. Second of all, on the other side of the house. Third of all, how did that happen when I was in the shower? When I remember being pregnant with Levi, and I would <laughs> I would put random things in the fridge. And like, <laughs> yeah, like your phone. Yeah, and I'd be like, what the heck? But I would catch it as I did it. Like, I just put this random thing. Like, it would be something, like a toy or something that I was putting away. But I put it in the fridge instead of over here. Like, you just did, and you're like, why did I just do that? Like, take it out. Yeah, but it would, like, I realized it in the moment. It wouldn't be, like, days later where I'm like, what the? Right. That is weird to me. Yeah. So that was that same day. So both those two things happened that same day. And both those things were just a week or two after the whole wolf thing. Mm-hmm. So 
She doesn't really tell anybody about it, though. She's just like, maybe I'm just, like, having mental problems. <laughs> like, maybe I'm, maybe I am just forgetting. So like, I'm losing it. Yeah, so yeah. She, she doesn't really tell anybody about it, but she's like, I'll pay attention. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't until a few days later that Terry came to Gwen saying, my memory is going. Like, there's something wrong. And she's like, really? Me too. Well, his story is that he was working on building a fence out on the property, and he had this big drill-type tool that would, like, drill, like, I don't know, four feet into the ground so he can put a post in there. Mm-hmm. So he's working with this drill, and he puts in, like, a few dozen posts, puts the drill down, and he goes inside to take a break. When he came back, that drill was gone. And he tells everybody, hey, where's my drill? I can't do this job without the drill. And they said, we don't know what you're talking about. Like, we were all inside this entire time that you've been taking your break. Like, nobody's been outside. But his drill was gone. Hmm. Do you want to know where he found it? Where? He didn't find it that day, but he was driving around the property one day, and he looks up, and he sees it 70 feet up in a tree. Just hanging. What? Just hanging in a tree. That's all I need to hear. Your right, story like, can be over. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> things are hanging from trees. A drill is hanging. <laughs> a drill that opens the earth is in a tree. So, <laughs> once Terry found the drill up in the tree is when he goes to Gwen and says, something's up. Because, <laughs> remember that drill that I, for, I couldn't find? Well, I found it up in the tree. So that's when they start to kind of click that like the pro there's something up with the property but they can't quite put their finger on what it is mm-hmm. now that they're aware terry starts to pay attention and he starts to notice strange lights around the property like off in the distance just kind of hovering above like a tree line or like hovering just below like on on the ground not really sure what it is but he thinks that it's probably just people trespassing on the property because mm-hmm. it's like 500 acres of land yeah so he's like it's probably just people like trying to come out here to hunt or whatever yeah just didn't see the signs so it's probably just their headlights or whatever so one night he sees these headlights off or these lights off in the distance and he's like okay i'm gonna go over there and just tell them to leave he goes over there and he, as he gets closer and closer to these headlights, he realizes that he can't hear the humming of whatever engine this vehicle is. He's like, normally I would be able to hear like an engine or like some kind of noise or something, but I don't hear anything. Yeah. So he's getting closer and closer to these lights and he's like, oh, those are not headlights, but he can't figure out what it is. And then the lights start to back up from him and then float up into the air and they just disappear into the sky. And when they did that, like, when they moved back and then up into the air, they didn't make any noise while doing that. And that's when he realized that that's not normal. That's not a vehicle. Right. Like, a a human, a normal human vehicle. Right. Or, I mean, this is, like, back in the 90s. It's not a... I don't know if they had drones back then, but there's no propellers on this thing either. So it's like, what was that ball of... Those balls of light that I saw fly away with no noise. So months go by after this happened, and winter rolls around. At some point, Terry realizes that there's a cow missing from the field, and he goes out looking for it. Um, he searches the entire property, and he still can't find it. Finally, he realizes that, there, realizes that there's one area of the property that he hadn't searched yet, and that was in that wooded area where that wolf had run into months before. So he goes into this wooded area to track down the cow, um, And when he gets to the tree line, he sees 
footprints that goes that go in, like foot like cow footprints mm-hmm. that go in. And he's like, oh sweet, this is probably where it ended up. So he's following these footprints into the woods, and they lead him into this like muddy area, and the tracks stop, and there's no sign of the cow. The creepiest part of his story, or this story, is that right where those tracks stopped are right where the wolf's tracks also stopped. In that same exact spot. Isn't that creepy? <laughs> I'm just looking at you with my eyes as wide as they can go. Like how... It makes you think that there's a wall there. And if you go past this like wall... Like a portal. Yeah. Maybe. Or Maybe. that's where the the abduction of animals happens. Like there's just like an invisible spaceship that just yeah. slurps them up. Yeah. <laughs> like right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that happened. And during that first winter, so the same winter that this cow went missing, Terry and Gwen owned the property and this happened four more times during that winter. That during that winter. That cows went missing? That cows went missing. But they didn't necessarily go missing in the woods. That was like the one time that he just saw the footprints and they were gone. The next four times, there was no trace. They couldn't find them, huh? Yep. By this point, Terry becomes extremely protective of his property and his cattle because he doesn't know what's going on or what's causing it. He doesn't know if it's like supernatural or if there is like a really is like an animal predator out there like or someone taking it or someone yeah exactly so he he doesn't know what's going on but he's like whatever it is needs to stop i am the man of the property (laughs) and i'm gonna get to the bottom of this yeah so terry uh went patrolling one night and he was just looking for this first he was looking for the wolf because he thinks that maybe it's this wolf that's attacking and taking his cows because that's the only thing that he's really seen so far so he's looking for this wolf, and he can't find it, but he starts to see, he sees this dark black object moving around the tree line, and he says that he, he described it as a, looking like a stealth fighter jet. It had multicolored lights, so like looking like it was scanning the ground, is what he said. He's like, ah! It was like it was scanning the ground, and as soon as he crouched down and like to get a better look at it, he made a sound and this object stopped, the lights turned off, and then like it zipped around and like looked at him. And then and then what happened? Sorry. It stopped and like pointed at him, like pointed in his direction, and then it zoomed away without making any noise. I'm panicking so, a little looking out at the sky. I know, right? It's like they can probably hear us. Yeah. I'm I'm suck. just waiting to see some kind of like animal that looks off but doesn't look like a bear wolf or like a wolf with its eyes not in the right spot or something (laughs) yeah (laughs) so terry and gwen bought this property uh in 1994 but the summer of 1995 they were reporting some pretty disturbing things not only was their livestock going missing but then the livestock was being returned to them completely well returned to them dead and completely drained of their blood Wow. And it seemed like surgical procedures had been done on them. In addition to the livestock problems, some weird stuff was also happening back at the house. They said that at night, when they looked out onto the property through the windows, they would see several humanoid-looking entities walking around the property looking emotionless. And sometimes the entities would walk all the way up to the glass on the windows and peek their heads in like this. And it says that their faces were emotionless. What the fuck? 
This is when the family started putting blinds and curtains up on every window and, be and began making sure that everything was locked at night. Even still, they heard rapping sounds on the windows and the doors as if something was trying to get in. The entities were even trying to communicate to them in a language that they could not recognize. What the hell? <laughs> this problem became so regular that it became almost impossible for the family to sleep at night. Another night, Terry was sitting out on the porch with his rifle and off in the distance he saw a bright orange orb type of thing just floating off in the distance. On his rifle he had a scope so he decided to look at it through the scope to get a better look at it and like to zoom in and see what it was. <clears throat> when he focused when he focused in on this bright orange orb he realized that what he actually saw appeared to be a, a portal because on in the center of this orange orange circle was a bright blue sky as if he was looking into a daylight window even though it's nighttime where he was I'm panicking. <laughs> my my understanding of his of existence is being totally <laughs> ruined. So soon after Terry saw this portal thing on his property, the family started to see blue lights around the property that showed up on the ranch and the family said that these blue lights were the most terrifying thing that they experienced. The blue lights. Beyond the wolf and beyond these humanoid things looking at them in the windows. And the dead cows. And the dead cows. These blue lights scared them the most. Why? Because whenever they saw a blue light and it came anywhere near them, they would get an overwhelming, uncontrollable feeling of anxiety, dread, panic, fear. Just overwhelming. Like they could not shake it. But as soon as that blue orb would go away, they felt fine. What? That is insane to me. The thing that keeps coming into my head is if this is like extraterrestrial, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is the purpose of these things? Yeah. You think of all the nut jobs that are like, I was tested on, I was abducted and tested on, and you're like, but maybe that's what's happening. <laughs> maybe it's an experiment because like we're weird to them mm -hmm. and they're like trying to figure us out. And in, in doing that, they're traumatizing us. <laughs> yeah. And they know that they are, but and they're probably like, they're like stupid humans. How interesting. This scares you? Yeah. But why? Let's right. keep doing it. Like, what if, <laughs> what if they don't have psychology? Like, that's what makes us human. And it they're is. like trying to figure out psychology yeah. in and of itself. And they're just like, why does your brain make you do yeah. things? Why we are you scared? What? <laughs> Feelings? What? <laughs> yeah, right. So... Like, yeah. it almost feels like they're not, like, tormenting them on purpose. I mean, like, I'm trying to, like, humanize the this weird experience. Right. But it's, like, maybe they're just trying to figure out why we're feeling what we're feeling. Like, how, like, like why are they scared of this blue light? What if we change it to red? What if it's <laughs> orange and it has a sky in it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You seem to like the blue sky. Right. So if this ball is a blue sky then you shouldn't be scared of it here we are still scared of it <laughs> like we can't make you happy and yet, so <laughs> i see sky through a hole and i shit my pants <laughs> so it's like oh, there's no logical explanation these these aliens are probably like the humans are so confusing like yeah. they they can't get their story straight yeah is the, do blue skies make you happy or not yeah <laughs> Anyway, when anyway. I die, that's when, what my, uh... Your first question. My first ask. question is, 
what are they doing? <laughs> yeah, why are they experimenting on this? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, like, I get to know anything. I'm just gonna die and I'm gonna know nothing. And I'm gonna be pissed. Wouldn't that be suck if, like, you get on the other side, they're like, and no more questions. <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're like, oh, but man. I have so many. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I didn't even get to raise my hand. I wanna know. <laughs> Seriously. I wanna know. We already sang that song last episode. I know, but it happens every time I say it. (laughs) So one night, Terry was sitting out on his porch again with his gun, and he was overlooking his property, watching out for these lights and these uh, wolves and things. Um, Then he saw a blue orb hovering off in the distance. His dog started growling and barking at the orb, and it starts to move in the air like erratically and he's like oh sweet like these dogs are scaring it off well the orb starts to hover over towards the wooded area and the dogs run after it and he's like don't go there well he thinks disappear he thinks that this is a good thing he's like yeah go get it you know like chase it off go you know so he's letting his dogs go yeah well only a few moments later he starts to hear yelping sounds Hmm. and horrible horrible sounds happening to his dogs He's too afraid to go check it out. He just goes inside and locks himself in the house without his dogs. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Cooper's stupid, so he <laughs> would go. Well, maybe he wouldn't. What would he do? <laughs> He'd be like, what I is I feel this like he would light? just sit down and just kind of look at it and tilt his head. Like <laughs> He would do nothing. But I would I would go after Cooper. Would you? If you heard yelping sounds, I, I would bet go you would. after. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't just let it happen. But it also depends on how scared you are, though. Yeah, because like maybe you're just like, do them. But also, he has a gun. Yeah. If I didn't have anything to protect myself, I think maybe I would hide. Yeah. But I feel like if I had a weapon that I could protect myself, then I would go and see what's up and at least. save my dog. Yeah. Right. But that's me wishing I would do that in a real scenario. Mm-hmm. It's probably not the right. case. I'd probably do the same. Yeah, yeah. So he, he heard all three of his dogs yelping. He goes inside and locks himself in until morning. Uh, the dogs never return, so he goes out looking for his dogs. He immediately makes his way to where he saw his dogs run, which is into that wooded area. Yeah. So just inside the tree line... He finds three large mounds of ashes and three burnt circles around them. What? And it turns out that the ashes were the ashes of his three dogs. What? That is so bizarre. You'd think that you'd see, like, what happened to them. Mm-hmm. But you just see, like, perfectly placed piles of ashes with, like, circles burnt around them. Burnt. But, like... Did you see smoke? He just went inside and locked himself in. But even still, don't you think it would be... Like, still smoldering the next day? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So, on top of everything that's been going on, the Sherman family also begins hearing voices in the wind. So, whenever the wind would blow, they would hear voices, and it was in a language they didn't recognize. Dude, I would feel like I was going completely insane. Yeah, definitely. So the kids' grades started started dropping in school, and Gwen even lost her job at the bank because she was doing poorly at work, and they were all suffering because of their lack of sleep. Yeah. So between 
the livestock being repeatedly threatened, the dogs being vaporized, and his family suffering in their normal day-to-day lives, Terry decided that he had had enough, and he made the decision to put the ranch up for sale. Good call. Yeah. He figured the best way to go about putting up the ranch for sale was to go to the local newspaper <laughs> in the June in June of 1996. Mm-hmm. And that is my story for episode 19. Dun, dun, dun. What did he tell the what newspaper? What happened? Yeah. Next episode will be part two of my story where I go beyond Skinwalker Ranch. We tell you about what the aliens want. I will let you know. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you don't get to know till next time. Yep. So hang on to your tinfoil hats. Yeah. And so yeah, this episode will air on May 15th and the next one's on May 29th. Happy Memorial Day. Sorry about Ted Bundy, man. I mean, that's one of those things that just kind of suck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, aliens. you know, it's kind of freaky about aliens. What if we die and become aliens? What if that's the really what's happening? I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think about it because, listen, extra... What? My brain broke. (laughs) I think you tried to say extraterrestrial, and then your brain stopped on the extra part. Like, what makes it extra? I think I heard your brain. (laughs) I think you did. Yeah. I'm like, why isn't it just terrestrial? Right. Why are they extraterrestrial? (laughs) Are we the basic terrestrial, and aliens are the extraterrestrial? So maybe that's our goal. Yeah. Maybe that's extra. what that's maybe that's what we're here to do is right. to like to prove ourselves that we could also go from basic to extra. Right. Become extra with us at Haunting Cold. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. well we're gonna go um <laughs> and <laughs> So this is over. Uh till next week. Uh, the, two weeks from now. This can't happen every week, you guys. We're pretty stupid. No. And we're not going to subject you to that. No. <laughs> well, we give you space to go listen to other well-known, popular, better podcasts. Better podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and so you get a little taste of us. You know, it's just a little bit of bitterness in your mouth, so you can go like wash it down with it's some like, sweets. <laughs> yeah, it's like one of those like experiences that you're like, I have to try it, and yeah. then and then you are like, no, there's there's better out there, and then you're like, oh well, maybe I'll give it another shot. So that's mm-hmm. basically what we expect is happening um, from the listeners we do get. Is, right. Is that and the a, feedback that we don't get <laughs> is that we're just basically something you chew and spit out and then go for something better next yeah. time, which is totally fine. Um, so check us out on Instagram, <laughs> and we'll talk, talk to, to you in, you two, in weeks. two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm, bye. bye.